Welcome, friends, to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey, everybody. I'm Alicia. We're so glad you came to join us this week. We've pulled out our rose-colored glasses to view the world this a, week a, on our episode. A big and fantastic world. We put some of our very favorite stories over on Patreon, and periodically we like to bring some out uh, to, to the bigger world, which is what we're doing today. So my story is Edith Piaf, mm-hmm. which is... Like the tiny little sparrow and all the French tragedy that you can imagine in one tiny package. That is the original Patreon episode from April of mm-hmm. this year. It kicked off our April in Paris series. Sure. And I have, uh, we did a, a new reading covering Emily Dickinson this week, who... The most misunderstood poet. Yeah, perhaps you were also taught that Emily Dickinson was a recluse who lived in a tower in Massachusetts and scribbled furiously until her thumb fell off or something and... And then she sadly died. No. Yeah, it's all lies. That's not what happened. All lies. We have always got, as you mentioned, Stacey, our favorite stuff happens over on Patreon. There are some bonus episodes over there if you want to check those out. I uploaded Fun With Done, Martha Moxley. Goodness, we have some more side pieces. Judith Berry Baker and the story of Mary Pincho Meyer. You can get in on all that good Patreon content for as little as two bucks a month. You want to hear what I did this week? What? I did an episode scrub. You want to know how many episodes we have over on Patreon? How many? 474. Oh, my God. <laughs> Trashy Tutors, Fun With Done, mm-hmm. Side Pieces, mm-hmm. Ocean's Eleven. Oh, Midford Sisters, coming back this week. You've got Trashy Politics and mm-hmm. Loose Women and Church, Church of the Flaming the... Dumpster Fire. Yep. And we are all over the place with the trash market cornered over there on Patreon. It's a lot of fun. We had some new supporters join us this week Mm -hmm. over there who are getting in on all that fun. Let's bring out our magic mirror and give huge thanks and praise to Ellen D, Sean B, and Katie D. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, y'all. And new super supporter, Megan K. We can't wait to see her face on our Live from the Living Room Salon on Thursday. Thank you to our new Patreon supporters, our existing Patreon supporters. This week was super fun. Over on Patreon, we did our usual Monday Trashy Tidbits. We did a follow-up on Unity Mitford and her lover, Adolf Hitler, and Maybe Baby. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The Anne Boleyn birth year controversy. That was a good super story. Super hot gossip. Uh-huh. Oh, we followed up on the history of the most, one of the most famous pearls in the world, La Peregrina. Cursed pearl. Owned by Mary Tudor at one point, as well as Elizabeth Taylor. That was a hell of a story. Oh, we talked about Georgina, too, Duchess of Devonshire. That was the yep, Banana King. That was a great which story. Which is going to come back next week when we talk about Chatsworth and Kit Kennedy. Trastrology is dropping today. We have our Happy Birthday Sagittarius episode with the most misconstrued ideal about each Zodiac <laughs> oh, sign. Right. That's coming out today yep. as well. Yup. Also, as a hot tip, we we put together an explainer on how to access... Patreon, your Patreon feed in your normal podcast player, if that is not how you're using it. So yeah, whether you support us or another mm-hmm. Patreon artist. Yeah, just check out uh, bit.ly slash TD Patreon help. And it'll give you instructions so you can load up your phone where you normally hear your podcast and just get every episode that's done by the artist you support. Mm-hmm. Super easy instructions. Thanks for doing that, Stacey. You're very welcome. Okay, I think that's the business. I think that's the business. Hey, let's tell some stories. I got my rose-colored glasses. Let's go, go, go.
So, Alicia, it's Patreon Wednesday, I I think. It's Patreon Persimmon. It's Patreon Alphabet. Who cares? It's Patreon Wednesday. Are you excited? I'm always excited. Are you excited? Yes, I'm so excited about this one. Welcome to Patreon Wednesdays, friends. Welcome to season six. It's good of you to put the day of the week, because I... I Seriously, am, I no. thought yesterday was Wednesday all day long. I tried to place an order for delivery, and I was like, I guess I won't get it until next week, because they only ship through Wednesday, and right. I was wrong. I may get it this week. I don't know. Wait, whatever day. Whatever. Whatever it is. Whatever year. Hey, y'all, so Wednesdays on Patreon, we've done Fun with Done. We've done Side Piece. We've done Ocean's Eleven. And we'll probably have more of those things uh, over time, too. Oh, for sure. But this month, this month, we are starting out. You have May for Wednesday Patreon, but I have a series because there's a theme. There's always a theme. And I have been super turned on all for my whole life, but over the last few months, especially with the French classic La Vian Rose. And it's welcome to April in Paris. Is this so, just your way of um, incorporating a million new mispronunciations? Yes. Yay! Yes. I have so many more chances to mispronounce Yay! things. It's our, it's, I think it's our listener's favorite thing too. I've been actually practicing. I have practiced. Which makes it all the sweeter when you... <laughs> La Vian Rose is actually a phrase which in French directly translates to life in pink. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, comparable to the English saying to see something with rose-colored glasses. Okay. So all during season five, we're always planning ahead to the next season. And I've been really thinking about this life in pink. And we came across these sweet William roses, which are pink, sweet pink williams or something uh I sweet william it's yeah they're not they're not roses they're little they're little baby things whatever. whatever it got me to like whatever. life in the pink and in the pink and pretty in pink and just telling our favorite stories mm-hmm. so april in paris every wednesday in patreon for the month of april you're going to have a story from me about perry and i've got Oh, God, so many stories researched. And yesterday was like, none of those are right. None of those are right. That's not, nope, that's not how we kicked this off. And then it came to me. Today we're going to cover the tragic life and triumphs of Edith Piaf, the Lavi Rose herself. And inventor of rice pilaf? No. Are you sure? Different Edith. Just kidding. <laughs> so when it comes to tiny bodies making amazing sounds in a life slam-packed with tragedy, the United States has Judy Garland. Okay. Tiny body. Sure, sure. Big voice. Mm-hmm. Tons of tragedy. France has Edith Piaf. <laughs> Her story has, well, everything. And we're going to kick this week off, April in Paris, with the tragic tale of Edith Piaf. And I will say that I was already feeling pretty tragic about it until I just tripped over our front doorstep was, and now I'm in an extraordinary amount of pain. I was wondering at if you were going to same time bring up that terrifying. Well, no, I feel moment. like I've really gotten it. like I have the pain feeling now mm-hmm. that I need I think to emote the story. Okay. Oh, fair. Okay. Yeah, that was it was 
terrible. I like, suffer for my art. You took a real spill I there, really and um, we're very fortunate that it doesn't require any sort of trip to anywhere to Which get fixed. Just why I have a shot of whiskey mm-hmm. and took some Advil, and oh, we're and recording now because I may not be able to move. I'm fine. One of your knees is going to be like twice yeah, its normal it's size. Bad. It's okay. not great. But today, okay, I have enough pain to channel through oh, the story of Edith Piaf. <laughs> born you know what yeah no a plus i didn't realize i didn't realize when you literally came through the door (laughs) i i am i i am nothing if not a realist i use the actor's method where you have to feel the okay little method yeah method acting giovanna gassion was born december 19th 1915 so sag Okay. In the Belleville area of Paris, it is uh, the Belleville area, not the best side of town at the time, especially it is one of the poorest parts of Paris. And Edith's birth develops this totally untrue legend around it. Edith will say her mother delivered her just right there in the street, waiting for her papa to come back. But papa's delayed because he's having a drink at every bar along the ruda whatever is he walking in and going i'm having a baby free drink no this is legend but the (laughs) edith's mother we we would do that like in you know um key west or something right now edith's mom says the police and edith arrived before papa did but that is the legend because records in fact show that edith was born at the local hôpital right down the road in the 20th arrondissement very normal birth. Okay. Opotel is hospital. hospital. Okay. La Opotel. I'm in my head. Okay. I'm translating. Okay. Opotel. La Opotel. Okay. Edith. God bless her little heart. Her her legend is built by uh, coming up from the streets. Uh, it is the key to the legend. She will tell her birth story constantly. Not true. But every time she tells it, of course, the story becomes more tragic and more beautiful. Let me tell you about Edith's mom and dad. Dad, Louis, is an acrobat. Mom sings on the streets and in small cafes. Edith is, in fact, named for the World War I British nurse who had been executed two months earlier for helping French soldiers escape from German captivity. Uh, Edith Cavill, I think is her name. I don't remember her last name. I didn't run it down because that was idiotic of me. Okay. Ancestor of actor Henry Cavill of The Witcher. I don't know. Can we just... Sure. Smile and go with it. Probably. Probably. Spider webs. (laughs) (laughs) So the Edith is a good start on the name, but Edith Giovanna Gassion will not be using her name. She's going to get another name, Edith Piaf, but let's get there. Edith does not have a great childhood. No school, formally, anyway. Her education is life on the streets. And her parents will always be performers first. And, well, maybe never really parents. They are thoroughly unreliable to take care of a child. Mom bails and hands the baby off to her mom. Dad gets hauled into World War I and will join the army. Mom has no intention of sitting around Paris taking care of a kid. So she officially is out. And dad, oh God, grandma doesn't want to take care. So dad gets Edith shipped off 
to dad's mom in Normandy. Okay. Who owns a brothel. Okay. And there the prostitutes help look after little Edith. There may be worse things. I don't know. Two floors, seven rooms, about ten girls. Uh, five or six were permanent, a dozen for market. And, uh, uh, oh, God. So this is where little Edith grows up. And Edith believes her weakness for men came from mixing with these prostitutes in her grandmother's brothel. I thought that when a boy called a girl, the girl would never refuse. Oh. So there's Mm. some childhood imprinting. Okay. Also in the legend of Edith, like truth in the tragedy, Edith will say that she was blind from the ages of three to seven, but all of the brothel sex workers pulled their money to take the child on a pilgrimage to make a miraculous healing for the blind child. I mean, what a great story. Louis, right? Like yeah. like a yeah, bunch of, you know, sex workers with hearts of gold. Like perfect. Whoa. <laughs> uh, manager We've had of, enough accidents today. Yeah, manager, manager of, of HR. HR is uh, in the house. Into his old. No, dude, we're practicing good social distancing mm. even though we live together. Wow, you have a look little guy come on don't write us up (laughs) so dad after the war will come back and is going to introduce edith to life on the road of a traveling acrobat she becomes part of his act so he's kind of doing his solo thing on the streets edith is the kid who passes the hat occasionally she'll sing a little too by the time Edith is 15. She and her buddy are like, we can do better for ourselves. And they leave. They're making like plastic flower wreaths for gravesides and picking up odd jobs that are just like pay nothing. But Edith maybe is singing on street corners too. But she's in Paris and this is 1930. And there are some of the greatest singers who are singing right now and tragic and sad and moving songs and emoting Something new in their works. Like, when you hear Edith Piaf sing, she does something just incredibly different within her voice that emits so much more than just the lyrics of the song. It's almost very Frank Sinatra that way. Like, how Frank Sinatra just emotes that different feeling, and he can be singing the same lyrics as everybody else, but there's something in his tone. Right, right. Edith Piaf... Same sort of, there's just, it's Mm -hmm. all just, she feels it in a different way. So she, yeah, she's the, she is the rare talent that is, that has surpassed the line between being a good singer and being a great performer. Well, she's, at this point, at 15, she's not even that good of a singer. Okay. She can sing loud, but there's no nuance. There's no, um, nothing to indicate that, in fact, she is going to be the star that she is okay but she's learning and like paris in the 1930s it's a terrific place to get inspired and her her act right is playing poor girl from the streets so you know everybody can get into the mean mean misery of the streets it's a very sympathetic story oh so. sure no and having i mean uh, having come through world war one recently like right. yes everyone would have well, been able to relate. Here's the thing about Edith Piaf. She's tiny. She's 4'10 at her adult height. So she is wee. Wow. She's so, so tiny. 
So Edith is 16. This is like 1932. And she's going to meet this dude, another dude. There's a lot of Louis in this story. This <laughs> Louis is Louis Dupont. Louis Dupont. And okay. they will shack up together. They do not get married. Edith gets pregnant and they have a daughter, Marcel, in February of 1933. And much like the example, because Imago, what is Edith had? Does Is Edith at all prepared to take care of a She's child? like 18 here? Hell no. 17. Okay. 17. She's in no way equipped right. to care for a child. So she's right. going to move out quickly afterward and she doesn't even have a mom to pawn her off to because mom took off no louis the dad is like oh my god what do you have to come back like and she just doesn't she's out by that summer sadly marcel will contract meningitis oh no and louis has to track edith around town to find edith Marcel will die at the age of two. Oh, my God. From meningitis. And maybe Edith will sleep with a dude to pay for the kid's funeral. Like, it's all tragic. Yeah. That's so oof. we get to October. Okay. October 1935. And Edith still st- singing on the streets. 410, Little Edith, mm-hmm. Mean Mean Streets. But like belting. It must, I mean, I can oh, imagine yeah, loud. Like, the visual mm-hmm. there is. is she's uh, tiny and loud. Is interesting. Okay. Edith decides to take a chance. And she is going to go to the better side of town to sing on a little bit cleaner of a corner. Huh. And Edith will be singing on the Rue Trial near the Champs de Lisée. And the most elegant man comes up to her after her performance. And his name is Richard Gere. His name is Louis Le Play. <laughs> Louis Le Play is an elderly gay dude. Okay. And he owns a club called La Guernies, located at 54 Rue Pierre, Chéron, in the 8th, arrondissement. And this place is cutting edge. It's tiny. It's legendary. And you don't go here to see what you could see in every other club in Paris. You come to his club to see what's new and fresh. A lot of famous people go to Louis' club. And Louis the Play is like, whoa, kid, you have got talent. And I want to book you in my club, but Edith Giovanna Gassion will never work. And you're so tiny. So I'm going to give you the stage name of Le Nom Piaf. It's slang for Little Sparrow, the word Piaf. Okay. So Louis Le Play will craft this tragic tale. Oh, which sure. Everyone... He doesn't have to go too far to find it. Yeah, everyone loves Kids a good story. Kids from the streets and mm. all this tragedy, and the Little Sparrow will sing and break your heart. Her voice sounds like it's coming from the gutter. Like, this is the shtick. Yeah. But Louis LaPlay is so kind to her. And Edith will call him Papa. And there is more love and care and concern about this child than she's received mostly in her whole life. And Louis LaPlay is going to do it. And her big break is coming, right? She's making 40 francs per evening. But the dividing line between the club she's playing and a better arrondissement and Going back home to where she lives, like the divide is not that far. And back at home, all of her friends are sex workers and the, like, she hangs out with kind of yeah. bad. That's who yeah. she knows. Hey, so did Jesus. <laughs> Get off with your judgment, Alicia. But no, I mean, she yeah. sort of comes from, she's hanging, she, you know, a, a fairly grimy 
circumstance and that that's her, like she's a, wild that's her circle she's yeah she's wild one of her friends will die by suicide one of her sex worker friends and she's like i'm never gonna walk the streets singing is gonna be my thing and i'm gonna be a star so it's all coming up la vie en roses right well, except for her friend Correct? no See, the good thing lasts about six months until April 1936 when Louis LaPlay is shot and killed and found murdered in his apartment. Oh, shit. It's a mystery that's still unsolved to this day. Maybe it was mob connections. Maybe it's a homosexual thing that goes wonky. But the shock of losing Louis, her papa, and friend is so distressing. But even more so, hold on, the police bring Edith in four days of questioning because they think she's the murderer. Oh, my God. J'accuse. 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 So this goes on for, like, days until the police are like, yeah, maybe you don't have a motive to kill, like, an elderly gay man who was like, dad, Who was kind of, yeah, who, who was your patron. Right. But holy cats, like, this ruins her reputation. Mm-hmm. Any progress that she has made is now wiped out. Oh, I'm sure other club owners are like, hey, You're I would love murderer. to hire you. It, yeah. it went so well with the last club owner who like, hired you. Yeah, no job. Her mentor's dead and no one is going to touch her because people think I'm a murderer. Yeah. Edith oh, my God. 21. Wiped out. Done. Is she done? Do they have clubs in Normandy? Not our Edith. She's not wiped out. It won't take long because of the talent. But mm-hmm. Edith is going to find a new mentor. This guy will also be her lover. His name is Raymond Asso. Finally, someone not named Louis. <laughs> Raymond sees her talent and he is going to launch his own campaign of making this kid a star. And he goes even further than Louis LaPlay. He sees all of her talent, but he knows that she is rough AF. Like, so, so rough. I don't know if y'all remember... Back in one of the earliest seasons, this is what it reminded me of when I was doing research on this part. If you remember Fantasia in one of the early seasons of American Idol, there's Fantasia, a voice like you couldn't believe, amazing voice, no polish, no presentation, chewed gum on stage, used slang, like she was so rough in her presentation and you just saw like, oh God. If you like, I mean, you don't want to, you want to tell everybody to be themselves, but a little bit of polish right, right. can go a long way. Right. Hence the word, hence the term diamond in the rough. Now, hint, polish. Did you, I loved my rock tumbler. You know what would drive I men wanted crazy? a rock, a rock tumbler as a kid. I really did. I never had one. Okay. Raymond Esso will take her off the streets. He gets her into a secure apartment. He will end up leaving his wife and children to move in with Edith in that place and take over 24-7 executive control and function over Edith. He is the one that will now take Louis LaPlay's La Nome Piaf and retitle her Edith Piaf. That's her new name. And no, none of your bad influence friends are allowed up in here. And we're going to fix your wardrobe. And here are black dresses. Mm. And let's learn some better manners. This happened to Whitney Houston, too. Well. This has happened to many, 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 many people. Well, he locks her away. Like, all of the bad drinking meant Mm -hmm. staying up all night, drugging. Like, she, he, 
he becomes like yeah. she's Galatea. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't like it's the toss up, right? Like, would these people achieve the fame they achieve without this type of person swooping in and shaping them into a fame shaped thing? Oh, I believe like, so. I, this maybe. doesn't go great. Well, Hold on. <laughs> yay. Okay. This affair is intense. It's all consuming. And he's helping her with all of her bad habits. And uh, he's keeping her on lockdown until he is ready to launch his little sparrow. (laughs) Also, Raymond is really important because he's like, uh, Edith, have you heard the blues? Have you heard jazz? Because you could be a legend. Gotcha. If... You're screaming. You're not singing. Like, he really does crash course her into taking the most of that legend you're building yourself on, teaching her how to sing. You perform in a black dress all the time. The rain Mm -hmm. in Spain falls. Uh, Also, Raymond is a composer, Hmm. and he is going to write her first song, Mon Légionnaire. Which is really sad. It's a soldier and he dies in a field with his blue eyes looking for, oh God. No, she's, it, like, every <laughs> a, a, one of her again, songs yeah, is deep just sorrow, tragic. Yeah. So Edith, woo, gets booked to play in a music hall, which is a hugely big deal. Not the tiny clubs that she's been in. But, uh, ha Edith, leave them before they can leave you. Edith is like, hey man. Thanks, Ray, for all your help. I'm getting where I need to go, so I'm done with you. And she will ditch Raymond for a younger actor and will be shacking up with that guy in no time at all, returning to all of her old bad habits. In 1939, Raymond is called into service for World War II, so he's out. 1940s. Can I jump in? I was about to say, like... um, These men who are crafting her as the sort of, like, singer of the tragedy of of life very smart um i mean they couldn't maybe they could actually in the late 30s know but like they couldn't know what the horror of the next war was Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean it that it's really like the zeitgeist in europe in that moment like hey good intuition there fellas well it almost kind of reminds me like when madonna broke through there was no going back from madonna edith piaf is the same way because in 1940, like, she's working with uh, Cocteau. She's in a film. She has an album. Like, she's, mm-hmm. once you've heard of her, like, she's broken through. Right. She changes the mold. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, it, it also catches the spirit of just really, like, a, two generations of war-demolished lives. Well, okay, so in 1940... Also, besides getting her like, little film role, the Nazis come to Paris, they which do. is fun. Not good. They occupy Paris, they so do. that sucks. But that's not going to slow Edith down. She'll head to Germany to entertain French prisoners of war. Mm. And maybe when she's there, party with the Germans, too. I mean, what do you do? I mean, her repu- she gets a reputation, which is not great. But she's flourishing as a performer. Paris is the pleasure city. Right. When soldiers go on leave, they go to Paris. So nightclubs are open. Clubs are open. And she's making her break. She doesn't care where she works. She just wants to work and be like, if she's not on stage performing, it's very Judy Garland. If she's not on stage performing, she doesn't know how to function. Right. So 
Edith will actually be deemed a traitor and will oh. end up testifying at a purge panel. And her secretary speaks in her favor like, no, nah, you got her wrong. She was really working for the resistance. Hmm. There are two definite different stories, but not the focus per se of our Sure. Story. No, I feel like I should apply the same sort of filter that I did to Coco Chanel, but I it also doesn't seem like maybe... Seems like Coco Chanel really might have just actually loved German uniforms and uh, <laughs> wanted that sort of. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, you're a woman and, and you're going to have you... a hard enough time breaking through anyway. So, you know, Nazis. Yeah. But do you, anyway. Yeah. Spring of 1944. Edith is now headlining at the Moulin Rouge. Yay. We've walked near there. We've walked by there. We got our picture on the sidewalk, and then we had a bar in the Irish we pub. We went into this weird Irish pub. Our mothers let us go to the Irish pub next I door. Was we had a drink. having some kind of crisis when we sat down. Yeah, it was... I remember that was a very strange... It was a great day. We've been to Montmartre. We were doped up on French cold medicine. Oh, that's... Mm -hmm. That's what... It, it's true. Yep, yep, yep. Good times. We, to, we ordered a cab, and we told the French cabbie, like... We just like picked an address at random in Montmartre, so not realizing that the roads were like eight inches wide and not full realizing of realizing you can't drive on the roads. Yeah, and the poor guy You may not have been a real cab. Maybe. <laughs> um Yeah, he didn't have the wherewithal to sort of stop before the crowd started and be like, Okay, get out. Um and so he literally like is inching through no pretty sure people aren't allowed on those roads it's a walking village right yeah right we walked past he, like a half an hour later he was still we, like we stopped for lunch we got out of the cab got lunch and then we see him still trying to inch his way out of my bar. we were so lucky we didn't die it was a nightmare in france or the netherlands the we netherlands. got in two cabs that were not cabs legally at all we were robbed a few times by people offering <laughs> but it was to fun. drive us stories. around Okay. <laughs> Not the point. <laughs> Moulin Rouge. Edith is headlining there. And there's an opening act. This guy's name is Yves Montand, the famous French actor who, no lie, is now 22, just off his hairstylist gig at his sister's salon in Marseille. And Edith, who is in the middle of a torrid affair with her composer, promptly dumps her composer. Is this Raymond? Or no, Raymond? different. Okay, totally different. different guy. Okay. No, she's here's here's Edith's jam. Edith's jam is finding composers to bring over, get super drunk. She tells them stories and they compose songs about then she'll lock them in a room <laughs> and say, I'll let you out after you sing me a song. Right. After the nine hours that we've just spent where I've gotten you loaded, probably fucked you too. Now I'm going to lock your room and I want you to make a song. That is how she gets her Feel, material. Feeling creative? Got the spark? Here, I'm going to close this door yeah. now. I'll be back later. Do you smell the bacon? Okay. Eves, whose act at the time is like uh, California cowboy? He has like a 10-gallon hat. Edith is like, no, 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 no. They change everything about him. They change his clothes. They change his mannerisms. They change everything he does. And Edith Piaf is going to make Yves Montand a fucking star. He'll get a role in a film. But by the time that film is done, 
Eve is done with Edith very much the same way that Edith was done with Raymond all those years ago. All right. Okay. Paris liberated in August of 1944. And the day that Paris is liberated, Edith, who is always looking for inspiration, she's always writing stuff on napkins, like, because she likes to tell these stories and give these words to her composers that she creates a lot of her own songs. Edith is watching the liberation of Paris sitting at a cafe and she begins scribbling lyrics on a napkin. Any guesses what that song is? I'm going to go with La Vie en Rose, Rose. Rose. Mm -hmm. which is different than any other song that she writes or performs. It's sweet and optimistic and not like steeped in tragedy. La Vie en Rose will be Edith Piaf's most enduring and most recognizable hit. Mm -hmm. Okay. The age of 31. Edith is the most popular singer in France, but she wants to conquer America in 1947. Dude, there's nothing here. Like, go stop. Back to there's Enjoy better wine. your civilization. We barely have one. In 1947. Ours is duct taped together. Just don't. No, you're going to love the story. Edith sails to New York to open at the Playhouse Theater, and the reception that she has is cold. The audience doesn't understand her singing. Here she is, the most famous singer in France. Mm -hmm. And Edith comes over, and she is in a black dress with no glamour, no sophistication. She is super tiny. She is singing sad, tragic songs that no one understands. In French. It is a flop. And Edith, who is used to being praised, is like, uh, this is a pretty... uh, Le terrible reception. Not how I saw this going. Yeah, not how I saw it going down. But she's determined to make it there, right? You can make it there. there. Make it anywhere. So there's this theater reviewer, and his name is Virgil Thompson, and he works for the New York Herald Tribune. And he will write an article. This is the (laughs) best. Goes kind of like this. Hey, New York. Go see Edith Piaf. She is great. And if you don't, and all this bad press about her and all your bitching are just proving to France that you are uncivilized idiots and don't understand music at all. Savages. You are savages. And she is going to go back to France and tell all of France that all of you are savages. You really need to go see her because you're too stupid to get it. So what happens to New York? Turns her into a fucking sellout. I mean, fair enough. Makes her a hit. She books at a club called Versailles, and a one-week yeah. engagement turns into a five-month sellout performance. Okay. Edith also, is arriving. Good, like, lucky that there was... I'm assuming Versailles was maybe owned by French people um, in the same way it was, that... Yeah, French club. How I Met Your Mother had a Canada bar and a Minnesota <laughs> bar, and never the two shall meet. Okay. Things are going pretty good. Okay. So what needs to happen? Tragedy. Oh. So at this long gig at the Versailles in New York City, Edith will meet a very sexy, very married, very much a father, handsome French boxer named Marcel Cerdan. Hmm. Doesn't matter. He's married with a shit ton of kids. Edith and Marcel begin a passionate affair edith is delighted and happy and it is a fucking scandal but they don't care 
Because for the first time, Edith is just as famous as the person that she is with. Oh. And he is just as famous as the person that she is with. And, like, Edith is finding professional success. And in 1948, Marcel will become the world middleweight champion. Which could make you famous back then. It, it, It is a big deal. La vie en rose. Edith has it. She has found everything she's ever looking for. Tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. Uh, of course. At the end of 1949... Is he killed in the boxing ring? There's a rematch. Oh, my God. weight title. Is he killed in the boxing ring? No. Okay. Uh, the rematch is in New York City, which aligns with a gig that Edith has. And Marcel is flying out to meet Edith to train and do uh. a little R&R. And some time away, you know, from the pesky wife and kids. October 27th, 1949, Marcel is killed when his small plane crashes. Fuck. With no survivors. Tragedy, tragedy. Edith will go on and perform that night. Dedicates the show Mm. to Marcel, but the loss of the love will leave Edith devastated, heartbroken, and she will begin her slow descent into even more tragedy. Like, she had her chance at love, and it's gone, and a bunch of her friends I saw interviewed, like... Yeah, it was great that they were happy, but uh, we'd been around her for a long time, and this one wouldn't have lasted either, but because it was ripped right, from her, right, right. and it didn't end in the usual way, Edith really begins her downward spiral here. Edith is 34. She's the biggest star now in the U.S. too. She's the toast of Manhattan, and the biggest names are coming to hear her, including Marlena Dietrich, hmm. who becomes a lifelong friend. Can't make it up. Artistically, (laughs) things are okay. She's weathering the storms of her life and her voice and what has happened because of all this tragedy. Her voice is extraordinary now, right? Because she really is emoting and feeling all of the... Yeah, the songstress of tragedy, yeah. But, you know, she's had these habits since she was 17. It's men in and out. It is heavy drinking the search for love is an ongoing theme, and she needs it um, like fuel, right? In 1951, Edith is going to be seriously injured in a car crash. She'll break her arm and two ribs, and the doctors give her morphine. Oh. Which adds to the alcohol. Oh. And the up all night and the come get drunk with me and be my composer and let me lock you in a room. Like, yeah, um, she will continue because apparently everyone drove drunk in France in the 1950s and in the U.S. I think she's going to have numerous more crashes that will continue to uh, complicate the situation. There is a singer, though. His name is Jacques Pils. P.I.L.L.S. I forget how to... Jacques Pease? Jacques Pease. 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 Jacques. Jacques. Not Louis. Jacques. Sure. He's a singer. Jacques will take her into rehab on three different occasions to try to help her. I guess I didn't realize they had rehab back oh, then. Yeah. But okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jacques Pease proposes... Remarkably enough, after one of these, and he says yes. And at 36, she is a bride for the very first time. Wow. She and Jacques have a civil ceremony in France. It's 1952. Jacques and Edith will head to New York 
to do a more formal ceremony where guess who the matron of honor is? Marlena, Marlena Dietrich. Dietrich. Yep. Okay. Can't make it up. Edith wants to show everyone that she could get married and has someone devoted to her and she's middle-aged and let's settle down and Jacques is successful and so is she, but they both have really demanding performance schedules. So they have an apartment in Paris that never has a piece of furniture. There's boxes and suitcases and she can't be alone for five minutes by herself. She's like horrible. So people come, people are the furniture. They never move in. They never set up home. They're both like ships in the night. And this is really when she begins spinning up her no sleep. Let's eat, drink, be married. Hey, writer, get inspired. Go into this room. I will let you out when you give me a song. Edith Piaf is always like always working, even when she isn't working. Like, I understand this. I'm always like, oh, yeah, that's you a are a great idea for a. I know. I feel so lazy next to you, but there you I go. Just, I I know, it's like, it's your brain, It's my brain. She's always on the lookout for a song. She will dictate to composers, write her tragic story. Everybody gets drunk as fuck, fucked as fucked, and then you come out the next morning with a song. In 1954, Edith is given the Grand Prix de Disque. It is the top honor for recording artists in France. She is selling out box office records at the Olympia Theater, in 1957, she sells out Carnegie Hall in New York. It's a big deal. It is a big deal, yeah. At 42, Edith is the highest paid female entertainer in the world. Haven't talked about Jacques in a while, because <laughs> that marriage is crap. By May 1957, that marriage has fallen apart, and they are divorced. But the next year, Edith will fall in love with the dude... He's a singer named George Mustaki. He moves into her flat. It, it He's interviewed in this thing I watched, and he's like, yeah, it looks tyrannical, but it was really stimulating for me. I composed a lot of songs for her. It was a thrilling thing to write What, the, her, her locking him in a room and stuff? That yeah, seems apparently tyrannical. she okay. kept him captive. Sure. <laughs> um, He gets into Why another not? car accident with her. He is just like, she was dependent on it is it was impossible for her to stop as much as she wanted to try, but no one ever told her stop. It was just part of the life in 1958. They have this near fatal accident. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, Edith is singing in New York weeks later, but February 20th, 1959, she will collapse on stage at the Waldorf in New York. She's diagnosed with a stomach ulcer, chronic rheumatism. In October of 1960, Edith will embark on a set of concerts known as the Suicide Tour. Okay, that's a bad sign. She didn't know how many years she had left. Did she name it that? Cause no, it's what people named it because later, that's how yeah, yeah, yeah rough it was. But 1960, she makes this amazing comeback huh. and plays the Olympia Theater in uh, Paris is like about to close. And she plays for 12 sold-out weeks, and it makes a comeback. Edith. It's going to hook up with a younger Greek guy, 20 mm. years her junior. He has a Greek name, but he's going to be rechristened uh, Theo Sarapo. Okay. Singer, actor, also hairdresser. Okay. Of Greek descent. I mean, multi- 20 years her junior. Multi-talented and young. By all accounts, he appears to organize her. They have a very curious relationship, though, because 
She looks like an elderly grandmother, and he's this, like, hot Greek god. <laughs> Edith will, much like Yves Montan, set out to make him a star. She will recall, restage name him Theo Serapo. They performed together in Paris, the south of France. Her health deteriorates. And even at these performances, she is being carried to the stage. But once the performance starts, she does it. And then she's carried off. Like, it's bad. It sounds, yeah, Judy Garland rings a bell, yeah. On the 10th of April, 1963, Edith is rushed to Hôpital. She has an edema of the lung. Ooh. Mm -hmm. She's in a coma. Two weeks after this, she and Theo head to the south of France to recover. She never sang in public again. Theo is devoted to her. They stay there. Their two-week holiday turns into we're not going back to Paris. Mm Mm-hmm. October 9th, 1963, Edith will slip into a coma and die the next afternoon of liver cancer at the age of 47. Good. Frida Kahlo. There's a 47 club, too. There you go. Well, Edith Piaf is in it. But it is uh, impossible for the greatest singer in France to have not died in Paris. So the next day, her body is taken from her villa in the south of France to Paris. So the death certificate can be completed in Paris. You couldn't have a French star dying in in a provincial village. No. So much like the legend of her birth, the legend of her death is in fact a legend too. Mm, Whitney Houston was 48. I was Mm. thinking she was another one in that club, but very close. So the the Parisians just uh, glamoured up with by sort of her, stealing her death. Well, it's dated the following day, but when mm. I mean, as much as everybody knows that Eve Piaf has been on the rails for a thousand years, when the news comes, the country is stunned. Uh, October fourteenth, forty thousand mm. mourners crowd into. The Père Lachaise Cemetery, where she is laid to rest near the country's greatest and most accomplished people. Hmm. Would you like to hear who else is in uh, Père Lachaise? I would, yeah. It is the largest cemetery in Paris, the main burial ground for the east of the city. So what happens in Paris is they make four cemeteries. They have a north, a south, an east, and a west. Let's see. Montmartre Cemetery is in the north. Père Lachaise is in the east. Montparnasse Cemetery mm-hmm. is in the south. Sure. And Passy Cemetery is the one for the west, even though it's more in the middle of the city. Okay. 40,000 mourners. Largest cemetery in Paris. Jim Morrison is there. That is the busiest grave. Oscar Wilde is buried there. Sure. And his grave has plexiglass walls around it. Where women come and kiss the wall. There are lipstick marks all over. But the lipstick marks used to be on his grave. And they were like, nah. Like, like they were deteriorating. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Victor Hugo. The sculpture of Victor Hugo where he's laid out uh, the relief on top of him. You can see his erection. 
He is hard and he is hanging to the left. And apparently it's good luck to rub his stone penis. Oh, my God. Sarah Bernhardt mm-hmm. is buried there. Mo Digliani, Frederick Chopin, Marcel Marceau. Oh, also a former president of France. His name is Felix Fora, F-A-U-R-E. His secretary was servicing him mm. and he died in the act. Oh, my God. He is there as well. That, my dear, is the sad and tragic story of La Vian Rose, Edith Piaf. I loved this quote by her. If I didn't have the life I had, I wouldn't be able to sing the way I do. Yeah. Yeah. She's a legend who weaves herself into her songs and singing was her thing. She's the... The voice of France and still is. I love listening to her. I don't know what she's saying. Sure. But when I really like hit, I listen to French music at night to go because it kind of keeps my brain occupied. Right. Like I can catch. Oh, that's I I know that word, but I don't. It's engaged. It engages a part of my brain that. No, you hear conversation, but not Mm -hmm. or. or, Yeah. No, I I had there was a Dutch uh, story podcast like the moth kind of kind of thing that i was listening to for a while at night wow so we have judy garland here in the u.s france has edith piaf Mm -hmm. and that is her sad and tragic tale that is open our first week of april and perry l'avril a perry oui 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 thanks everybody for tuning in you're the very best indeed we'll be back i got a good one next week we're going we're gonna to try to keep you upright in, in the interim. No more falling down. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to stand up. So let's give that a try. Okay. It's going to be awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll wrap up. Thank keep you so much. Keep it trashy. Mm-hmm. Keep yourself mm-hmm. upright. Stay safe. Big love. We'll Wash talk your hands. soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Oh, that hurts. Ooh. La pan. No, that's bread. Damn it. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So Stacey, you're doing a little freshen up update on a story you originally covered last year in Side Pieces, I think. Yes, I have breaking news. Breaking news? Uh, The life of Emily Dickinson. I gotta know. I do not have breaking news. Tell me the hot gossip. I think everyone is familiar with American poet and writer Emily Dickinson. The Belle of Amherst, 
We're dropping this episode in part to celebrate her birthday on December 10. And yeah, partly, it's a Sagittarius episode today. It is a Sagittarius episode, and partly to push back on what I think amounts to the erased queer history of her relationship with her nearly lifelong friend and sister-in-law, Susan Huntington Gilbert Dickinson, also a December baby, born on the 19th. Happy birthday to you Sagittarians out there. Happy birthday, archers. Much of this narrative is borrowed from the gorgeous book, Open Me Carefully, Emily Dickinson's Intimate Letters to Susan Huntington Dickinson by Ellen Louise Hart and Martha Nell Smith. It is a remarkable reassessment of the relationship between two women, one an ambitious writer and the other a prominent figure in Amherst society, also a writer in her own right, world traveler, person of note. Both women were born in 1830. Emily in Amherst, Massachusetts, and Susan in Old Deerfield, Mass. Susan was orphaned at the age of 11 and mostly raised by her aunt in Geneva, New York, but came to live with her sister Harriet in Amherst in the late 1840s. It's thought that Emily and Susan were friends by 1847, 1848, so late teenagers. Okay. Yeah. Just the time. Yeah, just the right moment, yeah. By 1851, Susan, who had become a public intellectual and writer in her own right, had left for Baltimore and a teaching position at a school for girls. This is when the surviving correspondence between the women begins, and the title of the book is taken from the instruction on a letter Emily sent to her in Baltimore, Open Me Carefully. It's very sweet. There's much tenderness. It's good. In 1853... Susan and Emily's brother, Austin, became engaged. Oh. This was not without controversy in uh, her relationship with Emily. But, you know, they married in 1856. So Susan marries Emily's brother. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Tricky. These webs we weave. (laughs) Some spider webs right there. So they married in 1856, and they would go on to have three children, Meanwhile, the Dickinson family had a house built for them next door to their own home. Oh, isn't that convenient? So it was like Evergreen was their house and the homestead was the Dickinson house. So a little compound. A little compound. Yes. No, it was a prominent family. I mean, I think think Emily's father was a congressman at one point. Like, prominent people. So Susan, Austin, and their kids lived next door to Emily for the next three decades of Emily's life. Okay. And became known for hosting salons with luminaries like writers Harriet Beecher Stowe and Ralph Waldo Emerson, landscape architect Frederick Olmsted, and abolitionist and suffragist Wendell Phillips. Oh, wow. While Emily sometimes joined, her core devotion was to her writing and the life of her mind, which has been a bit exaggerated. Her reclusiveness perhaps is not as reclusive as everyone goes. Thanks. The later years of the marriage of Susan and Austin were not happy. Austin began a quite public affair with a much younger woman named Mabel Loomis Todd in 1883. Yikes. Mabel would after the death of Emily Dickinson in 1886. And then Susan spent some time trying to compile the ultimate, like, authentic Emily Dickinson compendium. Mabel becomes a key editor not only of Emily's poems, but of her letters as well. Oh, There was quite a bit of overlap between the letters and the poems, uh, and Susan's children were just constantly shuffling messages between Susan and Emily, like, all during their childhood. Okay, can I just sum up and make sure I have this right? Yes. I know. Emily and Susan are carrying on a love affair. It's thought. Susan is married 
to Austin, the brother. Emily's brother, who has an affair with Mabel, Mm -hmm. and Mabel's somehow in charge of editing Emily Dickinson's work. That is a wicked, Mm. wicked square Mm -hmm. rectangle. Yes. Paula something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, it it is. I just wanted to make sure I understood. Thank you. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I know. I don't know what the shape of that is, but that's, that's the shape. But yeah, it was in this editorial process that Mabel literally took an eraser to the relationship between the poet whose work that maybe she revered and the wife of the man that she slept with for nearly a decade before his death. Oh, wow. Sue, the name is often physically erased. Like they've digitized a lot of the original documents now and and like the computer can find where it was originally written and then erased. Mabel also freely adapted Emily's work to suit her own tastes. I think Ah. she gave titles to poems that Emily did not title her work. Um, Mabel. Her changes were significant enough that Emily's longtime acquaintance and sometimes editor, Thomas Wentworth Higginson of The Atlantic at the time, stopped collaborating with Mabel (gasps) on collections of Emily's work. Well, good for Higginson. I, I guess, yeah. I don't know. It seems like no one was really protecting Emily's legacy at this point. Well, certainly not Mabel. No. Ten-year affair with the brother of the lover of the... There's a lot going on. There's a lot. It's There's a lot to the story. There's a movie about it that I will recommend at the end. It's a fun movie. Anyway, uh, throughout the decades that they shared, Susan was Emily's confidant, her first reader, her best critic, and her best editor. None of us can say what the precise nature of their love was, but by golly... Did they love each other? Aww. So I'm going to read from some just excerpts from uh, Emily Dickinson. Hey, it's trashy divorces. You just never know what you're going to get. Okay. Late 1850s. I assume this is after Susan has married Austin and they've moved into Evergreen next door. Okay. Susie, you will forgive me for I never visit. I am from the fields, you know, and while quite at home with the dandelion... Make but sorry figure in a drawing room. Did you ask me out with a bunch of daisies? I should thank you and accept, but with roses, lilies, Solomon himself suffers much embarrassment. Do not mind me, Susie, if I do not come with feet. In my heart I come, talk the most, and laugh the longest. Stay when all the rest have gone. Kiss your cheek, perhaps, while those honest people quite forget you in their sleep. So they used a lot of flower language. So I think as younger women, they were... Like the daisy and the dandelion were... I legitimately have no doubt about the relationship that they're having in my brain right now. <laughs> Sold. All right. So there were more traditional letters, but the the bulk of their day-to-day correspondence was an exchange of poetry. Both of them wrote it. Who could have guessed what happened between those two? Both of them remarked on it. And often the small piece of paper that they exchanged would have a piece of ribbon wound through it or a tiny cut uh, to accommodate a flower. And again, they're just sending, most of these are just being sent back and forth by the kids. Like they're just, hey, you know, run this over to your mom, run this over to your aunt. Like, I feel like singing my favorite things from Sound of Music (laughs) right now. This Uh, is Raindrops on Roses and Lesbian Love Letters. A little bit. Uh, I love it. Here's an 1850s poem that analysis revealed had Sue erased from it. Probably, again, by Mary Todd Loomis, who went so far as to misplace it in a collection of Dickinson letters that she published later to make it look like a tribute to a friend's new wife. Uh. Hmm. 
Her breast is fit for pearls, but I was not a diver. Her brow is fit for thrones, but I have not a crest. Her heart is fit for home. I, a sparrow, build there. Sweet of twigs and twine, my perennial nest. (sighs) Yeah. I know. (laughs) Anyway, so yes. another kind of little sparrow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yup. Okay, so this one follows the death of Nathaniel Hawthorne in 1864. He's the beautiful neighbor mentioned. Sweet Sue, there is no first or last in forever. It is center there all the time. To believe is enough. And the right of supposing, take back that bee and buttercup. I have no field for them, though for the woman whom I prefer. Here is festival. When my hands are cut, her fingers will be found inside. Our beautiful neighbor moved in May. It leaves an unimportance. Take the key to the lily now, and I will lock the rose. Maybe less overtly romantic there, but... I Really? Okay. Let's overtly sexual. So as they got older, the daisy and the dandelion stopped being their preferred flowers for each other. And so the lily and the rose kind of became more prominent. Like you just see this maturation. You have such a sweet look on your face right now. I love, I love this it. story. You know, this note that I just read, it's a sharing of grief. A fellow artist has died, but it doesn't matter as long as we recommit ourselves to moving the ideas forward. March of 1865, this follows the death of Susan's sister, Harriet. Dear Sue, unable are the loved to die, for love is immortality. Nay, it is deity. Mm. Emily. This next one is listed as the mid-1860s, but Sue's daughter, Martha, who went by Maddie, many years later would append a note saying one of the first scraps sent over, and the authors of the book speculate that this is perhaps to protect her mother and aunt from scrutiny. You must let me go first, Sue, because I live in the sea always and know the road. I would have drowned twice to save you sinking, dear, if I could only have covered your eyes so you wouldn't have seen the water. So by the late 1860s, there is a mature, loving playfulness evident everywhere in their messages. Here's this. That my sweet sister remind me to thank her for herself is valuablest. Aww. My favorite one in the entire collection, this is from the late 1860s, Susan's idolater keeps a shrine for Susan. Aww. So here's uh, the beginning of a lengthier letter while Sue was away with her family in 1866. To take away our Sue leaves but lower world, her firmamental quality, our more familiar sky. Early 1870s, to see you unfits for staler meetings. I dare not risk an intemperate moment before a banquet of bran. Mm. Now this is some this is some good good language. It's good language. It's um yes, it's warm and sweet and vibrant and it's so contrary to the portrait that we are given of Emily Dickinson as yeah. this saddled spinster emotionally closed off writing yeah, with a just furrowed like brow. Obsessive mm-hmm. exactly. This is a fragment from kind of that same period. To miss you, Sue, is power. The stimulus of loss makes most possession mean. To live lasts always, but to love is firmer than to live. Mm. So Emily died of kidney disease in 1886 at the age of 55. Susan prepared her body for funeral and wrote her obituary. This period of Susan's life was marked by incredible grief. 
So her youngest child, Gib, had died three years earlier when he was eight, and husband Austin would follow his sister in death in 1895, his affair with Mabel Todd enduring to the end. Hooray. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Susan's oldest son, Ned, would die in 1898 in his late 20s. So, you know, was Emily Dickinson Susan's side piece? Yeah. It uh, yeah. really, the writing really makes sense if you look at it that way. In either case, it is very clear that her relationship with her sister-in-law was intellectually and emotionally vibrant and that she had the added luxury of being a cool aunt. Susan's daughter, Maddie, says that Aunt Emily was, quote, a confederate in every contraband desire, the very spirit of Never Never Land. <gasps> Oh, I want to grow up to be that. No kidding. No kidding. Like, what a lovely... The very spirit of Never Never Land. Yes. And again, this is just not the Emily Dickinson that I was taught back in my school days. I don't think anybody was taught this Emily Dickinson. No. I hope they will be going forward now. All right. So, again, Susan lived until 1913. She traveled widely. She continued to read and write voraciously. And after her death, uh, Maddie, Maddie Dickinson Bianchi, inherited the trove of Dickinson poems that had stayed in the family. She was also a poet and a novelist in her own right. And she also edited and published several books of her aunt's poetry and memories about her. Maddie lived until 1943 and was apparently quite open and public about her mother and aunt's romantic friendship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As for the side piece that we know about, the purveyor of the Emily Dickinson myth and the eraser, as much as she could get away with, of Sue, Mabel Loomis Todd. Mabel was born in 1856 and lived until 1932. From 1879, she was married to astronomer David Peck Todd, and he was a big deal in astronomy, and aside from being a professor at Amherst College from 1881, the two of them traveled the world together, visiting Japan, Tripoli, the Dutch East Indies, Chile. But he wasn't good enough? In Russia. She had to go have an affair? Apparently, he was a very broad-minded gentleman. He oh. may have ended up okay. in a, an asylum. Um, oh. But it seems like he knew about her affair with Austin and was not overly concerned about it. Nonplussed. Let's say he was ahead of his time. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. This was not the impact that the affair had, however, in the Dickinson household, mostly because the affair began shortly after Gibb died. Mm. So, yeah, Susan was just overwhelmed with grief. I mean, the more we change, the more we stay the same. Like, the loss of a child is going to hit any... Like, it, these are universal themes. Yeah, and if we are supposing, in fact, that Susan basically had a lifelong romance with her sister-in-law, I'm not Can really... Can you blame Austin? I know, I'm not... I mean, apparently the affair was quite... And the how public he was uh, in in flaunting it, I guess, that was pretty devastating to Susan, but... But on the other hand, I mean, if if our premise here is that she had her own side action going on. Well, your wife has side action. They're sending flowers to each other across the garden. It's not front page news. They're writing poems. Yeah. Here's Subversive. a lily. Here's a poem. I'm not flaunting my mistress out on the town every night. Right. I mean, those are... Yeah. So anyway, Susan barely left the house for mm. about a year Maddie would later recall that it was Aunt Emily who initially came to sit with the other two children after Gib died. Again, didn't get this version. She was locked in a tower, scribbling furiously. Like, that's right. what I was taught. She wandered the moors after dark. I don't know. <laughs> it's just not. 
and the wind howls, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) It was just a very stunted picture that uh, I was given. So it's not clear what Mabel's motives were in reducing Susan's role in Emily's creative process. And in fact, in promulgating the myth of the reclusive withdrawn Emily Dickinson, it's tough not to read this material and see a long and happy love that animated both women for decades. But at the time we're talking about, Mabel was sleeping with Austin. He was very much alive. Susan was alive. Like, clearly, reputations would have been impacted. And probably it could have also screwed up her big project of publishing Emily Dickinson's poems. So she did publish poems by Emily Dickinson in 1890, poems second series in 1891, and then a two-volume set of Emily Dickinson's letters in 1894, and poems third series. She was wonderful at titling things, Mabel was. (laughs) In 1896, um, her relationship with the Dickinson family did not outlast Austin's death. There was a lawsuit over some property that Austin left to her in his will, and that was kind of... A shady. Everything went poof. Like, I'm not clear on how well those 1890s works sold. Uh, it does seem like it was Maddie's work, starting in uh, 1914 with an edition of Emily's Poetry, that kind of brought the bell of Amherst back to the public imagination. Consider that Walt Whitman, whose life largely overlapped Emily's, he lived from 1819 to 1892, Okay, chose to be a poet of the physical in a way that's always forced us to either grapple with or just embrace his homosexuality. Right. But Emily's poetry was much more metaphysical, and it didn't necessarily, or at least immediately, demand such a reckoning, particularly after the eraser hit. So here we are, a century on, debating whether or not we should believe our eyes when we look at the correspondence between two vivid and iconic women whose deep intimacy spanned decades. As I mentioned, there's a terrific little independent film portraying all of this and more called Wild Nights with Emily. It's written and directed by Madeline Olneck, and it stars Molly Shannon as Emily. And it just provides a wonderful tongue-in-cheek skewering of Mabel while still conveying, like, the truly infuriating crime that she perpetrated against Emily and Susan. If anybody in the story deserves trash cans, it's Mabel, but she would just erase them. So... Your magic eraser. (laughs) But I mean, if yes, Um, if you're a younger listener with an English teacher who hits you with the reclusive poet bit, tell them that's not how it was. It's lies. It's all lies. And if you are an English teacher, make sure the kids know that Emily, contrary to the myth, lived a rich life, loved and was deeply loved, and was the coolest aunt in Amherst. The spirit of Never Never Land. That's love it. New life goal. New life goals. I love so, it. So that is the the re the the double take on Emily Dickinson. Was a good story the first time. It's Possible a, lesbian it's a, hero. Lesbian? Come on, really? <laughs> I do not have any doubts. I mean, it, yeah. Again, the book opened me carefully. It's lovely. It is. It should. It belongs in every library. It's, and you'll put links to all of that mm-hmm. in the trashydivorces.com website. I will. I will. Well do that. done. Thanks. Well done. That was a fun side piece revisit. And happy birthday to Sagittarians. Oh, for real? Look at happy, that. happy? New Sag heroes. I bet you didn't know that Emily Dickinson was part of your tribe. There you go. I did know that because one of my BFFs is born on Emily Dickinson's birthday. Yeah. 
and I always confuse her and somebody else in between two days, and I have to go, nope, that one's Emily Dickinson's birthday. You have a truly strange mind. (laughs) Not a magic eraser. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for tuning in for yet another week of Trashy Divorces. We hope you enjoyed these Patreon spins. Again, you can find us over there at patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces. You can check out bit.ly slash Trash Candy Quarantine to check out a few free apps. Also, if you want to load them on your phone, we have the help tab at... It is bit.ly slash all, all one word, TD Patreon help. We will be back next Sunday with some trash that probably isn't quite as sweet or endearing as that trash was. Can't wait to see you then. Less language of flowers. <laughs> More language of fire. Until we see you next week for another episode of Trashy Divorces. Keep those paws so, so clean. Mm-hmm. Wear a mask. Have a delicious Thanksgiving. That is entirely true. I'm excited. We're doing our live from the living room on Thanksgiving this year. Mm-hmm. That's going to be fun. Keep it entirely trashy until we see you next week. Yep. Trash in your hearts. Trash in your heads. That's it. <laughs> Open me carefully. I'm a trash panda. Keep it trashy, everyone. Bye, friends. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.